Welcome back to the 99th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how there's a new religion in America and how some of the old ones are actually under attack. And then we're also going to be talking about how Massachusetts is going to stop evicting people, or at least intends to. And then we'll have our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So if you were to start a religion, what would it be? What value system would you try to promote to your followers? Would you have a deity or a god who's based on worldly things or... Would it be a new one that you create out of nowhere? Or maybe you would just stick to what we got. Maybe you wouldn't start a new religion. Maybe you think they'd do the job just fine. Tell me what you think. Throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to see what people create. Maybe we're going to have some spaghetti monsters or, you know, some moon gods. I don't know. People are very creative things. All right, let's jump to our first article coming from Insider. Congress gather to worship abortion at the first mass of a new church exalting women's autonomy. So, you know, there was always this conversation from some of the pundits that I would watch on the right. You know, Ben Shapiro would say certain things that, oh, or Charlie Kirk is a good example. Oh, these are the new religions. You know, these certain values that leftists, they talk about they're basically new religions they're replacing the old ones and i always felt that was a little bit hyperbolic i felt like no no no, it's not actually a religion they have a mentality that allows them to have different value systems and they value these more highly than religion but that doesn't actually put them on the same plane it doesn't mean they believe them it doesn't mean that they worship them it's just that they think that some of the things they're talking about are extremely extremely important And then you also hear people like Kyle Kalinske on the left talking about how religion is not as important to people. So that made me think, yeah, they're not going to go out and make these ideologies, these new obsessions they have. They're not actually going to turn them into religions. That would be idiotic. The whole point of a lot of people on the left who are atheists and even people on the right who are atheists are like, no, 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 no. We don't need religion. We don't need to worship something because we understand the world. We don't need there to be something larger than us, whatever the reasoning is. So, you know, there was a lot of push from the right saying this would become a religion, and there were pushes from the people on the left saying, no, come on, there's no need for a religion like that. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I kind of fell into my biases. I said, you know, Kyle, I don't agree with you on all your politics, but I think you're right on this one. Well, it kind of seems that I was wrong. So let's go over the the main idea of this church. Quote, at a renegade art and literary festival in Bombay Beach, California, Jackie DeForge knelt and prayed with passerbys at the inaugural mass of her new church, reading aloud from a sermon she rewritten using Supreme Court language. The group didn't merely celebrate, they worshipped abortion. The idea to create a performance art church came to DeForge last year after a draft opinion of the Supreme Court decision that would ultimately overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked, end quote. 
So, of course, we do need to acknowledge here this is happening at an arts festival, and it's kind of a performance art church. So it doesn't mean that they are there saying, yes, abortion is absolute. It is the highest value of all values. We must put it above everything else. It's kind of them playing at it. Or at least that's how the first paragraph seems to write about it. But then as we go on, we learn that there's a little bit more to it than that. And this Jackie DeForge, she is using the language of the Supreme Court against itself, using words from the decision to create sermons, poetry, prose that speak about the beauty of abortion, the beauty of female autonomy. And this is a little bit dangerous. Whether it picks up, in my opinion, whether it goes across the entire nation, we should not be celebrating abortion. I don't care what your opinion is on abortion. If you think that it's not a human life, if you think it's a clump of cells and it is not a baby, or if you do think it's a baby, I don't care. It doesn't matter, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, you are either still killing life or you are taking away the potential of life. You are saying, no, 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 this clump of cells, it's not going to have the opportunity to become a human being. That is still stripping away at the potential for life in that case. So is that a good thing? Should we be celebrating that? Should we be celebrating the fact that there may be one less life, one less person to help our society grow, one less person to add ideas, one less family member in some of these families. Should we ever celebrate that, or should it be a solemn process? Should it be safe, legal, and rare? If we go by that standard, and the reason they have rare in that standard when it was during the Clinton administration and when abortion was still a semi-hot topic, but the Democrats were a little bit more moderate on it, the reason it should be rare is because it's not good. It's not morally beneficial to have abortions happen all the time. And I think that if we had a church like this nationwide, of course we would see more abortions because they're actively praising it. They're saying that it's morally okay. They're putting it at a center of religion and saying there's virtue to it. And that's dangerous in my opinion, or at least it could be. So I understand that this is a performance art piece, but the fact that it can even get attendees and congregants is a little bit scary in my opinion. So let's talk about DeForge's inspiration. And there is a, a little bit of w work that the author does here to really clarify why Jackie did this. And I think it's important to understand. Quote, she had recently started creating easier erasure poems, painting over or whiting out passages in books and other writings to create new poetry from the words left behind, and was inspired to do so with the language from the legal document that rolled back reproductive rights for women across the country. Quote, I was very mad, like a lot of people were, DeForge, a L.A.-based writer and artist, told Insider. The anger and sense of grief over the loss of abortion rights, she said, inspired her to create the provocative symbol of hope, which took shape over the next year. DeForges told Insider, quote, and I decided I wanted to take the form, I wanted it to take the form of a manifesto for kind of this new imaginary religion that sort of worships abortion and female autonomy, end quote. So you can see where the cogs are turning a little bit. She's unhappy with this Supreme Court decision, so she's going to use their language against them. She's going to erase 
pieces in their decision and turn it into a manifesto about abortion and womanly autonomy. And this is where I find another argument for why this church should not necessarily be promulgated, or at least in the fashion it's being promulgated. I don't think it should be promulgated at all. But there's also the thought that, hey, if a church, the idea for a church is born out of anger, is not necessarily born out of love, compassion, morality, ethics, anything of those nature, the values that we may define as better or good in our society, but rather it's born out of anger, and the hatred for a decision, then even it could be a beautiful thing. Some beautiful things are born out of anger. But if the underwriting notes are, screw you for taking away our bodily autonomy, screw you for taking away our right to abortion, then that religion is going to most likely be one of anger. And it's going to be one with a hot passion underneath it, which may lead some of its members to do things that are not healthy, that are not beneficial to the situation, or maybe even harm others. And I know, let's be clear, it feels like I'm extrapolating. It feels like there's a, a big leap and bridge that I'm crossing here. But I think it holds true that if when you start a project, there is hate in your heart, then the outcome of that project is more likely to be angry, to evoke those mad emotions that you felt in the moment when you started with the idea. So I'm not necessarily saying just because you start with anger and just because she started with anger that it's going to devolve and there's going to be so much hatred, they're going to be rioting in the streets, but there's an undertone of anger that sits within that religion, and that's not necessarily a good message to spread, in my opinion. But obviously, I'm not Jackie. So, you know, and she lives in America. She has the right to do this. I'm just saying it's a little bit scary that a religion focused around abortion and focused around womanly autonomy that was started with a certain amount of anxiety, fear, and hatred for the decision of Dobbs is what led her to create this church. Those are scary inspirations, not because she wanted to inspire people, not because she wanted to bring hope to them, but rather she wanted a way to mitigate, to channel that hatred that she was feeling. So there was a first sermon and it was at this arts festival. And I want to highlight what was going on. Quote, before a small crowd, DeForges read aloud from the church's manifesto. She completed a gospel reading and then with a basket passed around to participants like a reserved donation plate. She encouraged Church of Potential Life congregants to take with them phrases from the manifesto, offering single lines of prose to think on. DeForge said she drew power for the project by taking the Supreme Court's words and kind of using them against them, reclaiming the words and reasoning used to strip women of access to abortion, end quote. And this is something I find very enjoyable to some degree, like I said, I don't agree with the message. I don't agree that this should be a church, that it should be, quote-unquote, a religion. But I do find that there's a certain amount of power in turning around the words that you find oppressive and using them against the people that you think are oppressors. Now, do I think the Supreme Court's an oppressor? Do I think certain people are being oppressed? I don't like that language. But the idea of turning around words that someone uses against you is very creative. 
and very playful. And I believe if done in a right way, it can be a healthy outlet for some of the feelings that Miss DeForge is having. So if she would do something like this and just use the words of the Supreme Court against them writing poetry, I think there's something beautiful about that at the end of the day. So that's where I think, hey, there's a little bit of play here. She's trying to show her creativity. She is trying to push back against a system that she doesn't agree with, with the power, with the words that gave the Supreme Court the power, or at least the reasoning, to do what they did. I think there's something beautiful about that. But I don't think that should be done in this context. I don't think that this church is actually serving a broader purpose. And even if it is serving a broader purpose, I don't think it's a good purpose. We should not promote this. And it's scary that a year ago, people were talking about how abortion is a new religion, how people have an insane faith in it, that it is their right to have an abortion outright, full stop. And nothing can get in the way of that. And it is a practice that is raised above as moral and virtuous. And now there's a church doing the exact same thing, saying, yes, it is moral and virtuous. It's one of the highest morals. It's one of the highest virtues. I think that at the end of the day, going forward, if this church was to promulgate, we will see terrible, terrible strife within this nation. I feel that we will have a little bit more hatred and fear for the decision of Dobbs v. Jackson, and there will be people who are saying abortion is right, abortion is okay, and we shouldn't feel sad when we have to have an abortion. We shouldn't dread going into that office and ending that potential life because, no, it is virtuous to end that life. It is moral to do so. And that's a flipping of the norms that I think is extremely, extremely dangerous. And I've said it multiple times. But let's move on from that. So we just talked about how this woman in California is founding a new religion. But there is something I want to talk about when it comes to the old religions, especially when it pertains to the Catholic Church. This next article comes from the Daily Signal. Judiciary Committee subpoenas FBI for documents regarding plan to infiltrate Catholic churches. So we're just going to jump straight into a quote here because you're not going to believe me if I start highlighting what this story is about. Quote, the House Judiciary Committee released internal FBI documents on Monday that show a plan to establish sources in local Catholic parishes to combat alleged potential violent extremism from, quote, radical traditional Catholics, end quote. The committee also issued a subpoena to compel the Bureau's cooperation during its investigation into the FBI's actions. Following the January leak of an FBI memo that targeted Catholics for investigation, Chairman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, and Rep. Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, issued a letter to the FBI Director Christopher Wray to turn over all documents related to the FBI's actions investigating Catholic dioceses, end quote. So, are they, is the FBI believe, do they believe that Catholic churches are a breeding ground for extremist personalities? Do they believe that the Catholic religion is predisposed to violence? Do they see this portion of the population as dangerous? These are all questions that pop immediately into mind. Because why else would you want to embed or gain sources 
in some of these Catholic parishes. The actual words they use is radical traditional Catholics in the memo. And the author expands saying that there's a potential violent extremism that comes from these, or at least that's what seems to be implied. And I do agree, the article is using strong language here. But that's because it's a serious question as to whether they view Catholics as extremists. Because why else would they try to gain sources, go into these different parishes, and you know, keep, a, keep their finger on the pulse and see what's happening? It's very, very disheartening when you have a huge government bureaucracy with a large amount of power looking at a certain segment of the population and saying, oh, we need to keep our eye on them a little bit more because, you know, some of the things they teach, they, they could be dangerous. They could lead to violence. They could lead to radical traditional Catholics or some sort of radical ideology. That is extremely disheartening. Because at the end of the day, it means somebody higher up or maybe even mid-level is saying, oh, there's the possibility that Catholics can be dangerous. We need to be looking into them. And then once they start looking into them, if they go in with the bias that Catholics are dangerous, they may actually find different instances that may seem banal to most people, but confirm their biases. So this is why it's a dangerous step forward from the FBI to be doing this. And I know, I've said dangerous a lot today, but it is not okay. This is why Jim Jordan is outraged about this, and rightfully so. Imagine if this was a Muslim community. Imagine if the FBI did this to different congregations at different mosques where they would go in, try to gain sources, and explicitly write that there could be radical, traditional Muslims. Do you think that people would be okay with that? Do you think that the Democrats would be okay with the FBI targeting this segment of the population? And that's a rule that I listened to Kyle Kalinske and he pointed out. If you think something's not necessarily right and you're having a hard time distinguishing, replace the people that are being affected by the action or basically swap places. So instead of Catholics in this instance, I said, what if it was Muslims? And then see how you feel about it then. Does the group that's being persecuted change your feelings about it? And if it does, and say I say persecuted, if the group that is being affected, if that changes your opinion about it, maybe you're being logically inconsistent, maybe there's a good reason for that, but it causes you to take another look, re-examine, because when you first heard this, you're probably like, Alex, Alex, they're Catholics, it's not a big deal, the FBI is just checking up on people, and then maybe when I replaced it with the word Muslim or Islam, you had a different reaction. So, and maybe you didn't. Maybe you're like, it's not a big deal. The FBI is doing a job, which is fine. I just don't think this is within their purview. And I think when you start doing this to different religious groups and trying to gain sources higher up in order to make sure that you have some sort of surveillance, some sort of constant flow of information from these places, it's not good to be that far involved. So, there is a quote-unquote, the article would put it as a plot inside the FBI that's kind of unfolding here, and we're starting to see a little bit more with these subpoenas and Jim Jordan investigating. Quote, based on limited information produced by the FBI to the committee, we now know that the FBI relied on at least one undercover agent to produce its analysis. 
in that the FBI proposed that its agents engage in outreach to Catholic parishes to develop sources among clergy and church leadership to inform on American pra- Americans practicing their faith, Jim wrote in the letter. Quote, this shocking information reinforces our need for all responsive documents, and the committee is issuing a subpoena to compel your full cooperation, end quote. And this is the part that is also a little bit not ideal. Let's say it that way. The FBI is not turning over all these documents. And there's re- there could be multiple reasons for that. One, they don't want to disclose certain sources that they have. They don't want them to be in danger. That would be fair. Or maybe, and this is a, a maybe, this is my conspiracy brain working, maybe they know they did something wrong. And that's why they don't want to turn over these documents because they know at the end of the day it will be outrageous when it hits the presses. People will not be happy with them because they know that what they're doing is not favored among the people. And let's be clear, the FBI shouldn't do what's favored among the people. If the people absolutely love a certain ideology that's destroying America and the FBI believes it's worthwhile to infiltrate the ideologues and break it down and make sure America stays strong, so to speak, then there could be a valid argument for the FBI stepping in and doing that. And just because the people will be outraged doesn't mean the FBI shouldn't do it. But the fact that they haven't released it to the subcommittee shows, in my opinion, or at least highlights that there may be an understanding that what they're doing is not favored. It's not actually good. Persecuting, not persecuting, I will stop using that word again, the FBI targeting a certain religion for the possibility of radical beliefs just because they feel that it's possible that radicals come out of here is dangerous. Because if they look at the total sample size of Catholics, there probably are a few radicals in there. Just like if you look at the sample size of almost any group that is large enough within the United States, there are probably a few fundamentalist Islamic folks there are probably a few fundamentalist, extremely orthodox Jewish folks who have some radical ideas. So they could use their confirmation bias to find issues with certain people, but not the overall population that they're investigating, and then use that as justification to say, we're going to crack down on Catholics. This is, let's be clear, all of what I just said is a slippery slope argument. There's a lot of assumptions there, but it doesn't mean that it is not possible. Just because I'm saying all these things could happen doesn't mean that they're going to, doesn't mean it's 100% certainty, but it means that it's a possibility, and you need to think through things like this in this manner, or at least I would encourage it, because even if it doesn't happen, thinking through the worst-case scenario, how it could be taken wrong, how these powers could be used and abused, it's a possibility that needs to be taken into account when making a decision on how you feel about what's going on right now. And I know it may sound like I'm talking down to you, but I want to make sure that at least you understand my thought process. I want to make sure that you understand where I'm coming from on this, because this is an important issue. All right, that's enough ranting on this one from me. Let's jump to our last article. This one comes from Hot Air. Massachusetts looks to permanently ban most evictions. In Hot Air, they come out swinging with this title, and within the first paragraph, they prove that that's, that's not actually the case. So let's describe what's going on here. Quote, back in 2020, as the pandemic was heating up, Massachusetts was one of the many states that evoked a ban on the eviction of renters. 
going further than the federal government. The measure known as Chapter 257 had remained in place since that time, being regularly renewed. But state legislators finally allowed it to lapse at the end of March. Now there is a push among Democrats in the state's House of Representatives to bring it back and make it permanent. While the new proposal wouldn't ban all evictions permanently, it would make it much more time-consuming and expensive for landlords to remove people for non-payment of rent or other violations, end quote. So as they're highlighting there, they're not actually going to get rid of all evictions. They're just going to make it really hard, bureaucratic, and time-consuming, which is basically the same thing. It's not actually, but it basically is. It's dissuading people from going out and actually doing the work. Now, if renters, sorry, if landlords, if they really want to get rent from their participants and they want to evict somebody, then they will be motivated to go out and do it. But a lot of people, they're not going to put in the time. They're going to say, oh, hey, well, that's a lot of paperwork. That's a lot of work. And if the state is covering me for it anyway, which is what this new proposal says it will do, it will basically cover the rent, then yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I'm not going not gonna to worry about it too much. And this whole phenomenon here happening in Massachusetts where they're going to basically get rid of all evictions, when people during the pandemic said, well, we are stopping, we're putting a moratorium on evictions. Some people, some on the right, some on the left, made comments like, oh, are we just going to do this forever now? And yeah, we all scoffed. No, it's extreme times. We're not going to do this. It's not going to be permanent. It's just now when people can't necessarily make as much money. They have lots of other bills piling up. They have to order all their food online, get everything delivered. So there are lots of extra costs. They don't have time to pay for the rent right now, or they don't have the ability. But now we're seeing a new normal, a renormalization of some of these practices, such as rent moratoriums. Now landlords are not going to have to worry about their renters paying. Rather, the government will just give them a check saying, oh, this should cover your renters. And while that sounds okay, while it may sound like, oh, well, yeah, we're supo- we're supporting them, we're providing housing, basically. It's just a universal housing plan, Alex. Why is that a big deal? Well, where does the money for the housing plan come from? Your taxpayer dollars. So even if you, as a renter, don't have to pay your rent and it's covered by the government, guess what? You're still paying something. It comes out of your taxes. You are taking on the tax burden of not only your own rent, but everybody else's rent. And now the landlord, his profits are cut down because he has to pay higher taxes that are paying for the rent of his own buildings and for the rent of other people's buildings. And you can see how this is problematic. And this new renormalization of this issue is a key point that Hot Air really hits on at the end. Quote, at what point did it become normal for people to expect to be able to stop paying their rent and other obligations and not face repercussions? There are public assistance programs, including public housing, that are available for those who run into economic hardship and fall behind. But if you are working, or at least have some other form of steady income, you've traditionally been expected to make arrangements for your own housing. You can't just continue dumping all of these costs on the state government, because, as the old saying goes, you will eventually run out of other people's money. End quote. And this is where it becomes dangerous, where these renormalization 
things become very, very unbeneficial to the population. Because if we have this now, we say, okay, rent moratorium. And then in the future, we say, no, no, actually, the state's already basically paying for everybody's rent. So why don't we just seize the buildings and make them rent-controlled government property? And then we'll pay for them out of our pocket because we basically are doing that anyway. And I don't think that's a much of a leap. I think that's actually pretty justified. And then the costs go up because no longer is the landlord the one paying for all the services to fix the building up, to make sure everything runs properly, to hook up the television, things of this nature. Now the government's doing it. So not only are they incurring the cost of renting out the apartments and the economic cost of not having that on the free market, providing money for the landlord and then for the people that the landlord employs, the cleaning staff, the maintenance people, things of this nature. But then the tax burden becomes even higher because now the government has to cover the expenses of maintaining that building. So in the future, they may very well run out of people's money. And it doesn't even have to go that far. Even if they cover all the rent in the entire state, how long do you think that's sustainable without raising new taxes, without increasing maybe corporate taxes, land ownership taxes? They might start taxing the landlords a little bit more in order to cover this. So you see where the article's coming from. This new normal, while it may have some benefits, at the end of the day, it's saying... We are the government. We will just pay, and we'll raise your taxes in order to do so, just to make you guys a little bit more happy or just to provide a little bit more stability in your lives so you can go find a good job. And if it works out that way, and this stability of not having to worry about rent means that the average income in Massachusetts goes up and we can see some benefits from it, great. I don't necessarily know if there's a correlation there. I don't necessarily know if that will happen. But maybe there are some benefits that we can't foresee. And Massachusetts, you know, if they want to do it, the beautiful thing about federalism is they can sit there and they can experiment. And if it works out, then maybe we can apply it on the national level. I look at it and I say it probably won't work out. And also the taxes are going to go up. And I don't want the taxes to go up here in Virginia. I don't want to be paying for other people's rent when I may own my own house. Or even if I'm renting somewhere else, I don't want to pay other people's rent. So we'll see. The beautiful thing about federalism, like I said, Massachusetts can experiment how Massachusetts wants to experiment, and Virginia can not do the crazy things that Massachusetts is doing. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Hiddeston Times. Chimpanzee meets lion cubs for the first time. So I normally think of lions as being fierce, very fierce animals. But this chimpanzee shows no fear when first introduced. Quote, in a video shared by Landon Skier, a worker at Zoological Wildlife Foundation Miami, you can see him introducing a chimpanzee named Lambini to lion cubs, end quote. And, you know, he really is the perfect companion for these little lion cubs because he's willing to give them so much attention, basically all the attention in the world. Quote, the video shows Lambini going to the cubs and hugging them. Further in the video, you can see Lambini even giving them rubs on one of the cubs' bellies. End quote. (sighs) Really cute story there. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos 
or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcast, Podvine, Pocket Cast, and also the link to the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a direct link to the YouTube video every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.